What's up, everyone? Welcome back to Dr. Lee Unhinged. I'm Dr. Shaw. Dr. Maxfield. And on this podcast, we talk about, sometimes we talk about skincare. Sometimes we just talk about whatever we feel like talking about. So <laughs> today we have some really interesting topics. If you're wondering where we went, which some of you were in the comments so thank you for missing us we appreciate that uh sometimes we just don't find time to record i'm traveling dr maxfield's traveling we're at work potentially so a lot of these things we end up not recording when we want to and we always schedule them and then those get canceled and so we apologize for that so we're going to consider this to be season two of dr lee unhinged we're going to get back to that regular weekly posting uh so for welcome back to season two of dr lee unhinged yeah, welcome back. And we went everywhere. Like, I lost my voice for almost a solid two weeks. Plus, I went, where'd I go? I went to the Caribbean on a carnival cruise, nonetheless. The cruise ship didn't sink. You were not happy about this carnival cruise, from what I understand. I'm also not happy. Yeah, like, it, it definitely has been worse since I went. Like, it, the carnival has been the headlines for, like, these notorious personal and horrific disasters lately but i did not like that cruise um the people were great the staff was great just not my environment where did you go where have you been you've been everywhere i was in italy i went to como that was vacation i went to Cannes film festival walked the red carpet which was pretty insane i'm not gonna lie pretty cool we got some good tuxedo photos out there but just you know being in that environment was really kind of out of my element to be honest hmm. i wouldn't necessarily say it's my thing um but definitely worth you know, very grateful for the experience, but overall, it's just not really my vibe necessarily, but uh, certainly something that, you know, once in a lifetime bucket list type of thing. Yeah, that's very cool. All right. So the first topic today, now that we've caught up on our life stories, life trajectories, <laughs> um, the first thing we're going to talk about is sunscreen oils. Keep it real simple. There are the 10 best, 10 best sunscreen oils and they say, from real simple here, sunscreen oil is the SPF hack to avoid a white cast. And now the white cast is like the eternal enemy, especially for those with darker skin tones who want to be good with their skin care, who want to protect their skin. Um, but realistically, the white cast is real. It's a struggle, especially if you're using a mineral sunscreen. So sunscreen oils, what do you think? Is this the answer? <laughs> I think over the past, five years, let's call it, three years, let's call it, the development of more elegant sunscreens has made it such that you can find a sunscreen that's going to fit your skin type. I, I can say that pretty confidently that if you explore enough, you will nowadays find a sunscreen that you love. Now, does it need to be a sunscreen oil? Not necessarily. I think there are a lot of elegant sunscreens that don't have white casts that, that are you know, beautiful. You know, a lot of times the ones coming out of South Korea are going to have that beautiful, not white cast blends well. And, you know, they're not approved in the United States, but they're amazing. And the ones in Europe as well. And even here, the chemical sunscreens are actually quite amazing. You know, Supergoop makes invisible sunscreens. So, <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not novel to have a sunscreen that doesn't have a white cast. Now, the sunscreen oils is just a new way of of, you know, marketing or not even marketing, but, you know, creating sunscreens. It's just in a different vehicle, but the, the same concepts still apply to all forms of sunscreen because this is one of those few skincare products that's going to be FDA regulated. Yeah. So with that, you get a ton of consistency. And we don't, we do say that enough, actually. We're very consistent in that messaging that, well, what's the best sunscreen? Well, tell you what, most of them, as long as they're, you know, SPF 30, they're going to be effective. It's very tightly regulated. And despite the inconsistencies it's 
going to be your most regulated over-the-counter product that you're buying that you can really bank on the most. So yeah, I'm with you. These sunscreen oils, uh, and I was just taking a look at a couple from the list. I'll, I'm going to shout out a couple that they talked about. None of them are just groundbreaking to me, but Sunbum Original SPF 30 Sunscreen Oil is one of them. Kopari, I have a ton of stuff from Kopari. Rose Gold Sunshield Body Glow SPF 45 is another um, where was another? Oh, Supergloop Glow Oil. Speaking of Supergloop, SPF 50. And they're using good oils like jojoba oil, sunflower oil, oils that are good for the skin overall. And that's just your carrier vehicle for with these, which are mo- they're all chemical sunscreens with the U.S. filters because they're U.S. products. Um, so they're effective. Now, can it eliminate the white cast? Yes. Um, it's going to be playing nicely with those darker skin tones now who is gonna who's not gonna like these oils though i just have a suspicion that most people who are dealing with oily acne prone skin or honestly i don't know about the the uh i don't know if i'd love the vehicle in hot humid weather i don't typically enjoy oily products when it's hot and humid outside which is also the summertime so for me you know these I'm not sure this is a solution. I know this is not the solution for everyone. And you already listed off some great alternatives that also blend. Uh, do you, what sunscreen oil, who do you see loving this sunscreen oil though? Where do you <laughs> see this niche fitting? Yeah, it's a good question. So just to kind of go to the basics of sunscreen oils in general, like the same principles apply, right? So when you're looking for a sunscreen oil, you're looking for something that's SPF 30, at least looking for something that's broad spectrum, potentially water resistant if you're going to be out in the water. So the same principles apply and you still have to apply the same amount that you would apply of regular sunscreen, which according to my calculations, if you've ever seen the video that I've done on it, would be two finger lengths of sunscreen applied to the face, neck, and ears. So in order to get adequate protection in those areas, you still need to apply the same amount. So that's maybe more sunscreen oil than one would maybe want to put on their skin to get that adequate protection. So I definitely keep that in mind. We get this question related to makeup with sunscreen in it and people say is makeup with sunscreen enough and the answer is yes it is if if something says spf 30 it really is spf 30 the thing is are you actually going to be using the same amount of the makeup that you would be using of a traditional sunscreen and the same thing would apply to your sunscreen oil so just keep that in mind if you're going to use a sunscreen oil you do need to use that two finger lengths in order to get that adequate protection so who do i think would like this People with drier skin, people that want to have like more of that glow, especially when they're out in the sun, believe it or not. So a lot of people buy tanning oils, right? They buy oils that don't have SPF in them, right? And then they rub them all over their body and those are tanning oils. So the opposite of what this is doing. So this is going to give you that oil look, that glistening, glowing effect out in the sun, but it's going to actually give you sun protection instead of increasing your chance of burning. So I think people that want that effect, you know, maybe people that, you know, like that glowing, maybe they have drier skin. I think they'll really like it. I think if you have oily skin or you don't like knowing that you have sunscreen on, I think you're going to, you're going to hate this. I totally agree with all of that. I think the the, uh, dewy glowy factor is a huge hit there too. By the way, I don't know if you've been playing with these the glow screen so glow screens are in let's say you know supergroup had perhaps the og with the glow screen but then elta md has a glow screen elf who apparently i'm a huge fan of has a woe glow screen and i think it's dynamite um so yeah if you're looking for a filter face if you want your filter your face to look like a filter glow screens are a crazy hack like it's insane somehow 
it's like a couple swipes on your Instagram filter, like we say, uh, and it's incredible. Now I'm going to, so I've just been playing with these. I'm going to show you some other things because not only do we have oil vehicles, we also have sprays. Uh, I've got a couple crazy ones here. So you have your scalp spray. So this is another way you can get SPF into an area that's hard to get to. Um, I'll spray my hair right now. It's if you're on the podcast, I'm sorry, you don't get to see this, but you would spray it into the part. It's, it's very watery, lightweight. Now the question is how much, and that's actually very difficult, uh, in my opinion, to be consistent with. And you have his other spray, this naked Sunday's hydrate and glow mist again. So these are completely invisible. So I think, which I one think is that from the spray? This is naked Sunday. Oh, it's very, it's very nice. It's very nice. And they yeah. also have, I'm a big fan of sunscreen thing. sprays for reapplication. Reapp- I don't think they're great it. for the first application just because you mm-hmm. still need that adequate, but like for reapplication over makeup or when you just, yeah, I think they're amazing in fact, but yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Setting again. sprays like from a uh, super goop setting spray, spray is a perfect, I bought some for the MMAs at the office. They're going to, uh, it's like a music con- concert crap. It's like, uh, I don't know. Swift. No, that like no one can get tickets to Taylor Swift. No one's going to Taylor Swift. It's all fake. That uh, Presley's hey, going. Our Presley is going to world? Taylor Swift tomorrow. That's why she's oh out of office. She didn't tell you why. Gosh. She sent us that email. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. I don't know. So it's like Burning Man or something. I bought them all setting spray from Super. Actually, Supergoop gave it to me to give to them to so like we protect our skin. I love that. So. Yeah, sprays are cool. What do I think about hair sunscreen? <sighs> for the hair shaft or for your scalp? Because those are two scalp. separate things. For, for the, the scalp. scalp. Yeah, what do you think? I'm <sighs> not a fan, man. Like, Why? I, this is going to be like <laughs> disputed. You know, I of, of course, like for the scalp, like if you're bald, shout out Dustin Portella. <laughs> um, definitely apply regular sunscreen to your scalp. If you have, we cut a lot of skin cancers off people's scalps. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm definitely think that you should protect yourself, hats, et cetera, et cetera. Don't get burnt, all that. (sighs) Sunscreen in the scalp, man. I'm not... I'm not feeling it, man. Like, But how are you going to get it there anyway? Like, you're left with either hats, the powder, which I, I also feel is fairly... It's good, but inconsistent, especially going through the hair. And then you have like a spray like this from Kula. Like... What other options do you have? If you feel scalp? so inclined to dunk yourself in a tub of sunscreen, then yes, I say apply vigorously into the scalp. Okay, I want to say this, this and I'm not, and I want, <laughs> I'm going to make sure again that no one can clip this video in a negative way. However, <laughs> there is some evidence coming out of Australia um, related to frontal fibrosing alopecia. Oh, I no. would not be. So excited to be rubbing sunscreen in my scalp personally. Now, this is definitely not conclusive. So nobody better run at me. But I, I, I care a lot about my hair. I also care a lot about not getting skin cancer because I had skin cancer. And I also have a receding hairline. So these two things battle each other constantly. <laughs> Do I want to put sunscreen in my scalp? I'm not doing it, man. Until, I, until I'm really bald, until I have a bald spot, it's not going to be me. You know what we've got going for us, though, you and I? Well, we have darker skin tones, just ethnically, but we also have dark hair color. Like, our hair does us huge favors. You get the people with, like, white hair, light hair. Um, it certainly doesn't protect the scalp as well. I, I'm So, okay, so Dr. Shaw hates sunscreen in the scalp. He wants you to fry. He doesn't really. But um, I'm going to bring this Kula spray next time, and you just apply it. It's, it's pretty crazy. 
you, you're gonna love it. I guarantee it. I guarantee right. it. That's a tag somewhere. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, definitely, you know, wear hat. Don't go baking out in the sun. Wear hats. You know, protect yourself for sure. But I'm, I, you will not see me rubbing sunscreen into my hair anytime soon. All right, let's just put it that way. Well, I personal won't either. Choice, a personal choice. I won't either, actually. So, I mean, <laughs> I just think it's good. I also don't put it in when I surf. I guess I'm, I guess I'm gambling that way. But I, I do think it's good. Um, despite my behaviors, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, that's Whatever. fair. That's fair. Like do do as we say, not as we do, you know, one of those things. Um, all right. So let's jump into the next very much unrelated topic here. Um, this is about a new fungus that's going to kill us all. So <laughs> there have been two cases of drug resistant ringworm infections found in the UD- US, according to the CDC. What are our initial thoughts and reactions to this? So I guess this is a an age-old problem that's my initial reaction and it's not like a millennial millennia a problem of a millennia it's a problem of really the last hundred years maybe last 50 years and what's happening um, just from an evolutionary standpoint is bacteria germs viruses they all grow very rapidly and so if you kill the 99 percent that are just genetically susceptible to one ingredient then all that's left is that one percent that's resistant to whatever ingredient killed them and so then that populates. And just because of that, just like we saw with viruses recently, and just like we saw with, just like we've seen historically with Staph aureus, and then now MRSA, any organism will find a way out. It will adapt, and we're going to get resistant organisms. Now, with this one in particular, we have what has historically been a fairly innocuous infection for those who have a strong or a normal immune system, and that's a trichophyton species of ringworm. Those typically cause just superficial infections into the skin. But this is important because it's actually hard for me as a dermatologist to imagine a world where we can't get rid of fungus on the skin. Like, can you imagine if every patient who came in with like tinea versicolor or tinea corporis, they, you had nothing to offer them? That would be, I just can't imagine because those are just such forward conditions. And if you couldn't treat them, they would severely impact a person's quality of life. Yeah, I mean, like you said, anytime you introduce an antimicrobial of any sort, whether it be an antibiotic or an antifungal agent, you're going to end up with the risk of developing uh, resistance to that medication. Would be terrible if we can get rid of fungus because it's everywhere and it can be really debilitating. Not only does it not have a great appearance when you especially have this is referring to ringworm but also when you have onychomycosis which is like a fungal infection of the nail also it's like really itchy and also it creates a breakdown of your skin barrier so you know you end up getting other super infections on top of that so you can get a bacterial infection in addition to a fungal infection and so yeah that would be a terrible world if there's an organism that we cannot eliminate what we're finding, I guess, with this is uh, this is specifically something called trichophyton endotinia, which is a type of actually, it's like a subsection of tinea mentagraphytes. I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm butchering these names, but that's what I used to call it back when I read the books. Um, so this is a, a type of like zoophilic organism, which means it spreads. It can spread from human to human, but it also spreads from animal to human as well. And they initially found these cases in India, which I think is probably why they called it endotinia. And then they got the first cases showing up in the United States. This, this multi-drug resistant Indotinia is showing up in the United States. First, I believe in New York, um, but then spreading from there. And 
It's resistant to terbinafine, fluconazole, griseofulvin, are, are sort of typical antifungal agents. And if you look at the life cycle of tinea in general, it did go through this progression. So initially, griseofulvin was the drug of choice. And then a lot of a lot of fungus became resistant to griseofulvin. And so people started to use ketoconazole. Ketoconazole called a lot, a, lot of, a lot of liver damage, but also there was some resistance. And so then terbinafine came out, worked out by a different mechanism, inhibiting squalene epoxidase. And they thought, well, they'll never be able, the drug, the, 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 the fungus will never be able to get to stop this, this terbinafine from working. But guess what? Tinea endotinea comes along and it is resistant to terbinafine because it has like a DNA point mutation and the squalene epoxidase, which is what specifically this medication is targeting. So now you have this drug resistance. What do you do? Um, it's resistant to the common culprits, but it looks like based on what I'm finding in the readings is that it it's displaying some type of results or at least some efficaciousness with itraconazole. So it seems that this terbinafine-resistant dermatophyte is responsive to itraconazole, which means that, like, at least we have something right now. But there could become a day where there's something that, that it, there's nothing it can respond to, right? And that that's yeah. very much possible. And then we come out with new medications to target this. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I have a lot of patients coming in with fungal infections that are quite difficult to treat and they can get into the hair follicle and they can go into the groin and the nails and they suck. So, um, and I'm always touching these patients. So I also <laughs> <laughs> don't want this to happen. So, um, so yeah, no, this is a, this would be a terrible world, but right now, at least, you know, I know a lot of people are freaking out over this article. It was covered heavily in press. We still have a treatment for this, um, and so you know it's 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 not the end of the world. But again, you know it's something to just keep on our radars. And actually, I think this kind of news it like it kind of freaks out the public a lot because they see drug resistant this, and everyone the public starts to worry. But really, these these types of transmissions uh, transmissions in, in terms of the articles or or these recommendations from the CDC or these notifications from the CDC are actually not like meant for the public. They're more meant for physicians to know, hey, like if you have somebody with a fungal infection and they're not responding to terbinafine, that's because there's a drug resistant uh, tinea infection going around and you should be using itraconazole. But I think they get sensationally, sensationalized in the news and then the public gets really worried about these things when really these transmissions were really meant for physicians to know how to treat these multi-drug resistant organisms. Does that make sense? Yeah, and that's a good point. Uh, and because yeah, the person who's gonna be dealing with that is probably gonna be the person in the hospital uh, or at least your physician who's trying to manage the patient. But um, you know, and I guess to the more serious side of the things here is that, you know, I, we have spent years of our life in the hospital during our training, and I have seen quite a few patients actually die from fungal infections. Um, some of them have happened in patients with cancer or other causes where their a person's immune system was lower. Uh, that's unfortunately a really, really, really common scenario. Uh, but, and then also, I mean, some of them just like crazy, crazy bad luck, just otherwise healthy people, just something happened and the op, the, fungus got an opportunity to seed uh, globally in a person's body and this is like terrible like those are actually some of the, these are some of the patients who have stuck with me the most I, i'm not sure why but um i at least have a few in mind where these terrible outcomes so it's actually, actually a really important topic especially when that's you and then i guess the question is though unlike i guess some of the drug resistant antibiotics like MRSA um, where antibiotic usage is the culprit you know we don't use too many antifungals because there's not a whole laundry list available like 
I think we as physicians, it's not like we have a arsenal. We're not, I'm trying to say this. It's not like we're throwing a moxicillin every patient who walks through the door with a cold, right? Um, we are probably appropriately and accurately treating fungal infections, I think more uh, judiciously than people are using antibiotics for like viruses um, and symptom relief, potentially. And we, we're, we're at fault too in other ways, but. There's probably not a lot of abuse of, except for maybe, well, no, I, I, I sort of agree with you on that, um, that the resistance is probably just a result of normal evolution and not a result yeah. of physician malprescription of medications. Yeah. So I just don't know how we adapt and adjust from here, but I guess it's just something to put on a radar. Everyone out there, all the professionals out there, just be judicious. We need to do better. Everyone needs to do better, but just do what you can. Fair enough. Um, all right. So that covers that. Don't worry. It's not going to kill you. This is a superficial fungal infection. And um, now you know what to do if you have one. Next up, let's talk about the everything shower. Oh, geez. I was first introduced to this. This is coming out of a CNN article uh, from Underscored Beauty. Um, Let's kind of hop to the article here. Mm -hmm. Basically, what this article is basically saying is, hey, there's something called the everything shower. And here's everything that you need to know about this everything shower. I cannot get onto the website right now. Uh, okay, let me help you out. I'll just do a very basic outline for those of you who are unfamiliar with the Everything Shower. I feel like this one came and went fairly quickly. Um, either that or it's just not on my feed and people are still doing it. But the Everything Shower is not your daily shower. The Everything Shower is like a once a month treat uh, or a splurge, uh, uh, whatever. But it's going to be step one, pre-shower treatments. Before you step in the shower, you do some stuff. Step two, your hair routine. You do a ton of stuff. And we'll go into a little bit more detail about this. Step three, exfoliate. Step four, shave. Step five, body. Step six, face. Step seven, post-shower. A lot of people probably do a lot of these things anyway, but we'll go into a little more depth here about some options that you can utilize because I know that uh, looking at the list, uh, are you able to, are you in the website yet? I am on the website now. Okay. Yeah. I know from this list, there's a few things that I still wouldn't do. Like if I had all day to hang out in the shower, I still wouldn't do some of these things. Um, And there are some other things in here that I probably actually should do. I will say, I'll tell you this. So the first time I was introduced to the everything shower was actually in an interview. So sometimes like press reach out to me and they want quotes about like new trends. And I'm in the middle of the interview and they go, what do you think about the everything shower? And I'm like, what the heck is the everything shower? <laughs> and they're like, well, it's a shower where you do everything. You you dry brush before, you exfoliate, you shave, you you know do a foot scrub, you do a foot mask. And I'm like, well, you know, I think there are times in my life where I've done almost like an everything shower, right? Where you're like mm. getting ready for an event um, or you just have like for some reason an extraordinary amount of time on your hands and you just like you know, clip your toenails and you shave all the hair on your body and you, you know, you, you take a really long shower and then you take a bath and you wash your hair three times and then you condition and then you, you put an oil on and like, you feel so good afterwards when you get in your robe and you lay in your bed. So I know what the everything shower feels like. It's definitely a treat yourself type of experience. Again, I think, you know, if you look at the CNN article, loaded with just like product recommendations and yeah it convinces the world these articles that like everybody needs a thousand products like the amount of there's probably about a hundred product recommendations in this just one article like a thousand dollars at least of skincare Mm. products that they make you feel like you need (laughs) otherwise you're not with the rest of us and this is not even practical 
You know what I mean? <laughs> so, yeah. um, well, how long do you take in the shower? So I, I've actually, ooh. because of just travel and things we've done professionally and so on social, we're like, I've, I've lived with Dr. Shaw for a few days on end. <laughs> um, and I, for the times I was with him, I was surprised how quickly he got ready, but I know this is not the norm. How long do you usually take? Oh, I thought you were going to, cause everyone criticizes me for the length of my showers being yeah, so long. That wasn't my experience. So for whatever um, reason, I was like in a more different. That's because we were in the same room, um, and so like it's that I didn't want to like take forever. But mm. sometimes I'll take a good twenty, thirty minute shower. That's pretty freaking long. <laughs> I know, I know. But that's where I generate all my ideas. That's where I have peace time. That's like the only time mm. I'm not on my phone. I'm always thinking um, that too. So, so, so it is the place where I, you know, used to have fun. In fact, I, that's where I used to read the back of my shampoo bottles, and I first learned about skincare ingredients and hair care ingredients from okay. uh, all the time that I spent in the bath, and then I became a skincare enthusiast from there. So that okay. was the springboard into what is now known as the Derm Doctor. So. <laughs> <laughs> all right that's fair my showers are getting longer too um they used to be i used to be like literally three minutes in and out i remember um, that but now i'm slowing down in my age and i'm a solid because you're at that trip minutes. and fall age now where uh <laughs> you gotta your watch out your hips won't hold up as well <laughs> you got one go with the hips <laughs> okay <laughs> um yeah no i i think okay so everything showers here's my thought um sure you know, just don't overdo it. Don't over exfoliate. That's a big thing. And one of these is like, they want you to dry brush and then exfoliate. I think that's not great for the skin barrier. Mm -hmm. Do you need to everything shower? No. And, um, but if you're doing them and you have a lot of time, they could be nice, okay. nice and relaxing. Well, let me do this then. Let me go through every step on this list. Just real quick. I'm going to fly through it and you just give me a yes and no. Good, sure. or bad. Do you need it? Do you not need it? Skip it, keep it, whatever you sure. want to say. Okay. The first one, uh, pre-shower treatments where it's with a category written. Are you going to dry brush? No. No, so you're not going to print sandpaper on your legs. You're not going to rub it down, remove your hair. I'm with you. Okay, the next one for your hair, a clarifying oil or a bond repair treatment. And then they mm. list the Olaplex number three. Olaplex number three is supposed to leave it in for 10 minutes before you get in the shower. Yeah, mm. I, I've done that before. Um, left it in a bond repair. I don't know that it made a big difference and it could be because my hair is shorter. So That's there's not it. as many split ends. But um, yeah, I, I think that could be nice. Yeah, I'm with you. I think long hair, it's actually really beneficial. Short hair, you, yeah, you're probably cutting it off before it hits that point. I'm with you. So hair wash routine. This is where I actually think some of it comes into uh, a, a big play. I think medically, we see a lot of sebderm and dandruff. So they don't actually list it out real well. But let's say, would you do a pre-treatment before your other shampoo? Whether it's a, an exfoliator, a scrub, a salicylic acid serum solution. Yeah, you know, I think actually like double shampooing, not the end of the world, um, especially if you have a lot of like buildup from dry shampoos, from conditioners, gels, you just haven't washed your hair in a long time. Mm -hmm. um, not the worst thing to like pre-wash your hair, like a double cleanse your hair, I suppose. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, like not a necessary step in my opinion. Yeah, I'm with you. I think I actually recommend that a lot more now. My practice style has changed. Uh, people who really struggle with scaly scalps, I'm really aggressive now with like the salicylic acid pre-wash, the silicone scrub brush, and mm -hmm. then the uh, medicated shampoo. So I'm there too. The, step three is now the rest of the exfoliation. So you exfoliated your scalp, you maybe already dry brushed, gosh. And then now you're going to be using a body scrubber, an exfoliator, once or twice a week, chemical exfoliators, what they list, or physical exfoliator for the body, they also list that. Would you do that? How often would you do that? 
I have a body exfoliator that I use maybe once a week or so mm. in the shower. So that's interesting. And, and 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 that's not out of like me buying the product. It's out of me being sent the product. <laughs> and I'm mm. like, ooh. I actually yeah. right now, so I've actually sampled quite a bit of these. Biosance has this like sugar scrub that's mm. pretty nice. Um, and then you know what else? Uh, the Murad, Murad, Murad. Yeah, they, he uh, he has a um, a also like an AHA scrub. Also, so it's got like little tiny, tiny, tiny particles in it. Mm-hmm. It's almost like smaller than sand. Like the the particles in this, like so tiny, we can barely feel them. Um, that's the one that's in the shower right now. So I, I try a lot of products so that I can make recommendations to you. But if I was shopping for products, I probably wouldn't seek this out unless I had a particular issue. Like if I had keratosis pilaris or something like this and i Mm -hmm. had some type of texture that i was trying to treat but since i don't um i don't think it's necessary for most people yeah i agree for everybody for especially younger individuals i definitely don't think exfoliating your body is a necessary step if you don't have a specific deliberate purpose for doing it um the older you get the more functional it probably is but the next after you've exfoliated after you've dry scrubbed exfoliated your scalp exfoliated your body twice now you shave which is actually another layer of physical exfoliation <laughs> potentially, but the shave in the shower. Um, I feel like some people might have a really strong opinion about this. I don't know why it just seems like one of those things, but it seems it's obviously very practical. So shave in the shower. Yay. Nay. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Shaving in the shower, no issues at all. I mean, you want to shave when your hair is damp and you know, it's absorbed some water. So definitely for that to reduce the risk of razor bumps and irritation. The only concern with, that is like where you store your razor. So, mm-hmm. you know, I don't like when people store their razors in moist environments because that, you know, leads up to a buildup of potentially this multi-drug resistant fungal infection. Um, so what you do, what you don't want to do is, is, is store it in a damp environment. And if you are going to keep it in your bathroom, then make sure you're changing your razor out at least once a week. That's so expensive, but uh, probably the better decision. Okay. No, there's way less expensive options now. Oh, you Dollar Shave Club. You're you have uh, Jill Razor, which is a great facial razor. Mm-hmm. You have um, Billy, which is like a replenishing service. My wife has. She gets um she gets like the Billy uh, heads or whatever. Like mm-hmm. so, she has one handle, and then it's a subscription service. I think she pays like ten dollars a month, and she gets wow, that's good, um, and they're good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not bad, and it's like you know, pretty high quality razors. So that's good because I have a terrible experience with Harry's razors. Or yeah, I think it's Harry's razors. Oh my gosh, that was really. Hell. I can't believe they've caught on. Just <laughs> obviously, we're never getting sponsored by them, but that's just. You get what you pay for with those. Um, the next step, I think, is actually out of order. So I actually liked the exfoliating before shaving because it helps you have a more even surface on what you're shaving, decrease razor burn. Then next after this comes the body wash. So, Ooh. so you're you exfoliating and then you're washing again and shaving. Man, this is this <laughs> take all week. Um, yeah, I mean, body wash, good. You know, uh, again, you know, target to those like armpits, uh, groin. Mm-hmm. Uh, chest back for the most feet you know but you don't need to go crazy with your body wash either yeah obviously you should be washing in the shower please for everyone else just wash in the shower that's the least you can do um i just would say you know i actually think i so this is a crazy thing but i mean like i there, i do believe i had a patient who um did get a really severe infection and actually passed away from uh, shaving so i've kind of been obsessed with the idea of cleansing before shaving um, ever since then. So, 
Um, it was like a group A strep infection. And, you know, bacteria live on our skin. If you're shaving over dirty skin, you can get infections. We see it all the time on the face with staph aureus and staph bumps in your skin. Um, so especially in areas, if you're shaving your little sensitive bits, uh, I do believe you should be cleaning it before you're shaving. Cause we do have a lot of bacteria there anyway. So I like the cleanse before the shave. Uh, that's just me. I'd go exfoliate cleanse. No, I'd go cleanse, exfoliate, shave, exfoliate, cleanse, shave. I'm not sure. Hmm. Cleanse, exfoliate, shave, rinse. Mm-hmm. There. That's good. Moisturize. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. Uh-huh. Um, Okay. Almost done. Face wash. This is also out of order. If you're going to go top down, face wash first. But face wash, obviously. Ooh, well, actually, face wash at the end, uh, not against. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think definitely uh, you definitely want to wash your face after you shampoo and condition. Right. Yeah, that's the big thing. Um, so yeah, yeah. Top down actually makes a lot, probably the most sense. Logically, that's how I do it. Uh, I start top down, but Yes, then wash your face. That's fine. And, you know, this is actually controversial, watching your face in the shower. Yeah, why is that? Tell I have me. no idea. Like, <laughs> you're like, oh, the, 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 someone was trying to tell me that, I don't know, that the power of the shower on the face was not good for the skin. I'm like, I don't, I'm not buying it. We don't give our skin um, enough credit. <laughs> um, it puts up with a lot. The, right, uh, right. eye cream thing is uh, maybe a pet peeve of mine, too. I'm not sure quantitatively your ring finger versus your pinky versus your middle finger has a clinically significant difference. Just my opinion there. No, I I apply on social media with my ring finger. I noticed. Um, However, I always say I'm doing this for no reason at all. It's like being extra. You know, you're just doing it. You're just doing it to, to be part of the culture. But really... It has no benefit, no change, no difference. Unless you like have absolutely no dexterity in your other fingers <laughs> and you just like cannot control, you have no pressure sensation, you have no Meisner corpuscle <laughs> and you're just like poking yourself in the eye. I really don't. I you Just apply your eye cream with any finger. Yeah, me too. You know, I'll still <laughs> post it with my ring finger too. Just like avoid the comments, but um, yeah, 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 me too. Okay, last thing is post shower treatments. I just you know do your skincare routine after that. Moisturizers on damp skin, lock in that moisture. It helps. So yeah, agree. That's it. That's your everything shower. You've done it. You're clean for the year. For the year. <laughs> now, now you never have to shower again. Um, all right. So last topic and this topic, most of you guys can turn off the podcast now. Uh, this is specifically, (laughs) this is us talking about physician compensation, um, right now. And, um, it's relevant to everyone, quite honestly. Um, even if you may feel like I'm not a physician, why should I care? Um, I think that our healthcare system is on the brink of collapse and I think it's relevant to everybody. Um, and I think probably, in the election, you should pay attention to these things because I think it's going to affect all of us. Um, so anyway, so let's talk about what's going on and why, you know, we're bringing this up. You source the article, this article, give me the title here. Uh, more physicians want to leave their jobs as pay rates fall survey finds. So what they're finding is that two out of three physicians are considering an employment change. Mm-hmm. 36% of respondents said they are considering early retirement due to overwork and that compensation is stagnant or down across many specialties in 2022. What are our thoughts about this in general? I 
think it's a it's a real problem, but it actually kind of hits home. I, I mean, I'm seeing we see this, I think, all the time, even among our peers. And we're young physicians, like hot into the field, and we're also fortunate to be living our dream jobs. So, like I tell my patients, like objectively, it's hard to encourage people to become a doctor now. I actually believe that. I think if you quantify your time, investment, and money, and then return, um, it, it, there's definitely better options. Uh, no question about it. It, it. But if you feel called and passionate to be a part of it and to help people, then this is the job for you. And I, I, I'm one of those. I'm very thankful to be here. But this is, I think, a problem we've been seeing more of, and I think it's only going to get worse. And I think that the pay rate adjustment here is actually just the tip of the iceberg, and it may not even be the biggest player. That's just what they quantified, and that's what their uh, the one of the studies they cited was actually showing. And the context with the pay portion of this is in it, in lieu of inflation. That's one of the things that they take a look at. And this is where it also becomes relevant to everyone because um, out inflation, I think, across the board has outpaced earnings. And so I think everyone and, I, you know, people I work with at the office, my MAs, my nurses, they're feeling it too. And they talk about it all the time. They're like, I, I went to Walmart and this is insane. Like I buy the same things. I bought, I've eaten the same food for five years. But, oh, my gosh, like it's it's becoming difficult to compensate um, even despite pay increases. It's just not kept up. Yeah, I mean, 100 percent. I mean, everybody is struggling. Everybody is struggling. Everybody that works at our office. I hear about this every day. Like people are bare, were barely making ends meet before, and things are only worth worse now with inflation. And so, I think this trickles down to the medical industry as a whole because mm-hmm. it's not just physicians that become the the problem in this, right? So, you know, no no one wants to cry tears for the physicians. <laughs> Let's just put it right. that way. Yeah. Um, and I, I understand, like, the pay for physicians is higher than most people, and so. What is important, though, is that medical reimbursements have gone down or stayed stagnant over many, many years. And so there's one statistic about basically how how Medicare reimburses payments and that basically the pay for a unit of service worked from the government was $36.68 in 1998 and then $36, so gone down in 2019. So over a course of 20 years, the reimbursement either went down slightly um, for unit time. During the same time, inflation went up by about 100% or close to 100%. Um, and so basically what you're finding is either declining or the same reimbursements, but the cost of living is is much higher. The problem is that the, the money that's brought into the system is actually brought in entirely by the people who are billing for the service, right? So at our office, the only people who generate income for the office are people that can bill for services. And the only people that can bill for services are our physician assistants, our nurse practitioners, and our physicians. And so when the, when when those reimbursements decline and we can't bill for other services and the other people in the office can't bill for services, what ends up happening is that everybody who works in that conglomerate is affected by that, right? Because the reimbursements are going down, inflation is going up, but not only are the physician reimbursements decreasing and the nurse practitioners and the physician assistants, but also the money that then trickles to everybody else in the medical conglomerate is also affected by this. And so what you're what you're seeing is a squeezing across the board. Medical supplies are going up. 
the cost of uh, electricity is going up. The cost of renting the property, the building that you're in is going up. Uh, reimbursements are going down. Your staff labor is going up. And so what you end up doing is you're squeezing every penny out of the system to the point where you're wondering, why is my physician only seeing me for five minutes? Mm-hmm. And it's like, because if they don't, then then the lights shut off and they can't. And, and basically what ends up happening is that the quality of service goes down patients are the ones that are harmed in the process they're the ones that get the short end of the stick and every dollar is being squeezed out of the system and now physicians want to leave healthcare, according to these studies which means that it's only going to get worse for everybody yeah and that's so i I guess i'll tackle two points here with that the the again we're young physicians we work with young colleagues occasionally and a huge portion of them are like done like they've spent 12 10 years i think i spent 11 years after college just with my training but so many of my colleagues are like i just want to pay off my debts and move on and that's a huge thing like most people come out of residency and they're working to pay off their debt for the next 20 years of their life because it's exorbitant but the the second arm of what you said i think you're comfortable sharing your debt tuition debt yeah sure why not like what's it gonna hurt me i think i owe 400 um maybe more at this point what about you? I owe four hundred and thirty-six thousand dollars. Yeah, it's and that yeah, that's a period of your life. Not only do you, you're like basically paying people to work, like it, because the amount you earn doesn't outpace the interest you would normally garner for your. You're actually like losing money and paying people to like work an insane amount of hours for ten to plus years of your life. It, it's a pretty crazy system. Um, the second arm of it too, though, is the time with patients. And so like flipping over to another article, um, just one is just like from health grades, but they cite, they do have some good references in here, but seven reasons doctors are leaving medicine. Um, even just starting from the bottom, too much bureaucracy dealing with the HRs, uh, lack of independence. Very true. Um, and, and a big part of this too, is like lack of time with patients. There's another article here that cites that as a major reason. And that is actually a really common co- question I get in my, our lives. Like it, people are like, oh, I wish my dermatologist would talk to me like I talk to you. And I always try to call that out because uh, it's the healthcare system is now uh, built so heavily on efficiency. And as physicians now are employed, like we're not making the decisions in any capacity, it seems like. And so as we're employed, and as Dr. Shaw mentioned, the reimbursement per unit time has gone significantly down. So the employers, whoever's at the top of the different models, they want to bring in the same amount of cash so how do they do that? You have to work more. You have to see more. You have to be less efficient. You have to be more efficient, rather. And so the personal interaction, interactions in that physician-patient relationship is just like died. Um, and I, so I tell people on social media, I'm like, hey, you know, if you saw me in person, it'd be totally different. Like, this is why I'm here with you on a Saturday. So I can have these long-winded conversations because I love them. I think they're valuable. They're meaningful. I enjoy them. You enjoy them. But if you see me in the office, it's not like that because we're built into a functional, efficient system. So... That is a huge source of frustration for patients, but also doctors. Like it's a shared concern. Yeah, um, I think a lot of patients don't have trust for the medical system, and I don't blame them. Um, especially if you look at our track record. But um, a lot of physicians, a lot of dermatologists, message me and they tell me that you know, thank you for making these videos mm-hmm. on YouTube specifically because. I just direct my patients for the counseling section to your videos. So they say, do they have time to explain to you how to use a retinol? 
um, some yeah. of the cautionary tales. What do you have to do? Um, how to apply sunscreen? How much? Like, there's just not enough time built into those visits um, for them to be able to explain these things. And so that's why I think, you know, part of the reason why our content has resonated so successfully on YouTube is because there's an audience that is hungry for this information because there's nowhere else to get it. And even when they go to see their dermatologist, the time isn't there. And that that's true for our, our own patient visits. We just don't have the time to go over every single thing and we wish we could. And everybody who knows me knows I take very long in my patient visits. So they're actually <laughs> slotted longer than most dermatologists. Um, but the reason I can't afford to do that is because of social media, honestly. Right. And so, you know, it's created a lot of balance in my life that I have this alternative source of income. But at the same time, it's not practical for most physicians. So I happen to, I, I'm sort of complaining, not because I'm in the system uh, about what's happening. It's because I see the rest of my colleagues suffering in this. And we're part of a lot of group chats. I'm part of a lot of dermatology group chats, but a lot of like, even from, you know, where Dr. Maxfield and I trained where, you know, a lot of people are really struggling right now, um, you know, both from our staff to the physician colleagues that we have trying to figure out how are they going to pay off their loans and, you know, the, their mortgage and, you know, the cost of everything is going up. And so, you know, we're, I, I kind of feel for everybody around us who is struggling. And I think that this is an unsustainable system that eventually will have to reach a breaking point. Now, what happens when we reach that breaking point will be the interesting part of all this, because what if this cannot be sustained, like, do we just completely overhaul the medical system? Do we go completely private? Do we go completely public? Do we go to more of an NHS system like the UK? Do we go to more of a system like Canada? Is it more of a VA system, which is a coexisting system in the United States for the veterans? I, I don't know what direction we'll eventually take, but I can just tell you that the way the system is right now, from the ins as an insider in the system and from every article that's coming out and every piece of documented evidence that this system, the way it stands today, will not be sustainable after five years. Yeah, I think that's a bleak picture, but a very realistic picture, unfortunately, by the numbers. And it's just a consistent, a consistent thing across the board um, from every angle. So who knows what the future holds? Um, but what I do know is that you will have passionate people on this end uh, who will be helpfully helpful in taking care of things as best they can because you do have like a very passionate group of uh, physicians especially behind the scenes because the cost investment is so high <laughs> like they went into it for a reason and a lot of times it doesn't show but uh, usually there's like some very deep-seated passion which is why we get heated about this topic like this is our this is our love child like this is what we dedicate our lives to you know is helping people and so uh, it's just something we get worked up about yeah no I there's a reason to be sort of worked up about this because what I find more than anything, there are no two people whose interests align more than the physician and the patient. Mm, the physician-patient so relationship we always talk about. Those two people, whoever mm. they are, always want the same thing. Like I always want to prescribe the best medication for my patient. The patient always wants to take the best medication for their condition. The patient always wants to get better and I always want the patient to get better. And there, and though you, th that seems like the t simplest thing in the world, everything else stands in the way of that happening, which is just totally insane to me that there should be any two people standing between, between the physician and the patient. There's maybe a hundred people that mm -hmm. are trying to, to, to actively stop 
the 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 what we both collectively want, which is just insane to me. And I like I actually totally sympathize with patients. You know, like I, sometimes I have physician colleagues upset with how patients are reacting to the system, and I'm like, I get it. They just got a bill for a thousand dollars when they thought they had insurance that was going to cover it. <laughs> like I'd be frustrated too. You know, they're barely making ends meet and then they get hit with a bill, but they're like, wait, I've been paying health insurance for the last three years. I've never used it. And now I owe a thousand dollars. Oh, well, like you didn't know about your deductible. Oh, you didn't know about uh, the copay. Uh, it's how would we know? Right. So the, the system is like, it is actively working against us. And like, I think a lot of physicians are moving towards cash pay. And I think patients are very happy with that because they're paying less they and they're getting more. And um, it's really interesting to see that happening. But mm-hmm. believe it or not, sometimes if you pay cash, you will pay less for your health care. A lot less. It's crazy. We have colleagues in the space and I've talked to some of them at the AAD. They've gone private. Like they have no staff. They have no overhead, no staff. Every patient gets 20 minutes. Like you're like, oh, 20 minutes is that long. It's a long time. You run out of things to talk about in 20 minutes. Um, and so the patients are extremely happy. The cost the overall cost, just quantifying like what I would normally bill and what they were billing for the similar thing, it's like a tenth of the cost. And the reimbursement for the physician is more overall. It's just, it, like you said, there's 100 people between every patient-physician interaction. They're all making money. And um, the, it just drives the cost and, uh, up oh, as well as, I think, the intricacy and the complexity and the difficulty. So. I don't know. No good answer. It's like not, a, not everyone can I don't pay have for a, solution. a cash visit. But. I, I genuinely don't have a solution. All I know is that it's not good and we need some smart people trying to figure this out and not pushing people out. But I would say like yeah. whoever's listening to this, if you're a physician, give your patients grace. You know, they are frustrated. They're not getting what they need. They're paying a lot of money for it. And if you're a patient, give your physicians grace because they're also, you know, it's not as, as, as the grass isn't necessarily as green as it may look for a lot mm-hmm. of people. And it is getting more and more bleak, especially with like mental health amongst physicians, um, just in general, isolation amongst physicians, suicide amongst physicians. So, you know, I think that, you know, we are all always on your side. I've never met a physician that did not have the patient's best interest in mind ever in my entire career interacting with thousands of physicians. Now there are bad eggs out there. I've seen the stories. We've all <laughs> seen the stories. Dr. Death. We've seen awful stories. Those are the exceptions a hundred percent of the time. And so definitely give them grace. Um, we're fortunate enough to be living our dream. Dr. Maxfield and I, you know, we love science. We love dermatology. <laughs> we love our staff. We work in the best office environments. Uh, we get to do what we love on social media. And so we happen to be like, even exceptions in this system where we, we get to mm-hmm. still do what we love and, you know, prosper from that. So we're very grateful for all of you for giving us the opportunity to do that. But, um, at the same time, like, you know, definitely, definitely give grace to the people around you. Perfect. Well, I think that's a good way to wrap it up. Um, we always extend and ask for grace in any situation. We're very thankful for it. And we always end it with it. Like we're very thankful for you because we genuinely are. So thank you so much for being part of this. We're so glad to be back on the podcast scene. And then uh, always just thankful for everyone on this journey with us. All right. We'll see you on the next one. We'll see you next time. <laughs>